The reading for today's sermon will come from Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verse 28 through Hebrews 8, verse 13. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, He was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Thanks, bro. Let us pray together as we come to God's word this morning. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are to be able to come to your holy word. How grateful we are that you have revealed your word to us. That you have given us all that we need, Father, to understand who you are and what you have done to redeem us. And how it is that we need to to live our lives in a way that pleases you. Father, we're so grateful for this revelation. We're so grateful that it is 
It is a product of Your Holy Spirit and not just the imaginations of men. Father, we praise You that Your Word is infallible and inerrant and living and active and full of the power to transform our lives. And so this is what we seek this morning, Father. We seek to be transformed by a greater vision of Christ, by a a deepening appreciation of who He is and what He has done. And so, Father, would You be with us? And Holy Spirit, would You help us to understand? Would You open up our minds? And would You especially open up our hearts that we might be doers of Your Word and not merely hearers? And so, Father, we we seek Your help and we give You praise this morning as we come to Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, uh, just before... My family left to head out of town. We finished up, as you remember, our study of the book of Acts together. And having spent all of that time in the New Testament together, in the, in the book of Acts, I wanted to jump over to the Old Testament next for a while and dive into a series surveying the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to do starting Next week, the Minor Prophets. That's a, a, a group of books that, on the one hand, a lot of Christians might be less familiar with than other places in Scripture. Sometimes the Minor Prophets don't don't draw our attention as much as places that um, that we like to study, like the Psalms or the Proverbs and the historical books, or even the major prophets of the Old Testament. The minor prophets might be, might be less attractive, might be harder to understand. You might read through them and go, what in the world am I reading? What are they talking about? And so that's why we're going to study them together. Because even though they, they may not be the books that we go to the most in, in our reading and studying of God's Word, they are, of course, no less the living, active, God-breathed Word of God than, than any other portion of Scripture. And they're full of rich and wonderful truth that our God has revealed to us and, and, and that is incredibly profitable to us. So we're going to be spending some time in those books in the coming weeks. And as we do, we're going to see that one of the richest ways in which God reveals Himself and God reveals His truth in those books, even in the Minor Prophets, is by revealing His plan of redemption and His purpose to bring about eternal salvation through the coming Messiah. Christ is revealed in the Minor Prophets for our profit, for our benefit. And there are many, many ways in which He is revealed. And and we're going to see that our understanding of those ways will deepen our devotion to Him as we study Him through God's Word that way. But today, as kind of a segue between that upcoming study of the Minor Prophets and the study of the book of Acts that we just completed a few, several weeks ago now, what I want to do together today is focus in together on this central aspect of the Old Testament Scriptures in terms of how they all all of the Old Testament Scriptures were revealed by God not just to teach us about God's character and about God's nature and His holiness and His law. Not The, the Old Testament wasn't just given to show us the history of the earthly nation of Israel. The Old Testament wasn't just given to us in order to reveal important uh, moral truths about how to live righteously before God in terms of God's law. Mostly, 
Mostly, God revealed the Old Testament Scriptures to us in order to reveal Christ to us. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And that's everything that the Apostle Paul would have been teaching and preaching whenever he went into a city and went into a synagogue, and especially as he was addressing the Jews, remember? He was reasoning from the Scriptures with them about how Christ was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament Scriptures reveal. And that's what I want for us to to grab hold of today in preparation for some study in the Old Testament, but also coming off of the heels of our study in the book of Acts, what I want us to see is what Paul would have been preaching in those synagogues as he went to the Jewish people there. who had Those people had grown up, just like Paul had, studying the Old Testament Scriptures and longing for the great hope that God had revealed in those Scriptures. And Paul was proclaiming to them that the essence of that hope and the fulfillment of that hope and the realization of that hope is all bound up in Christ Jesus. You remember at the very end of the book of Acts, when Paul finally got to Rome, he came there bound. He came there in chains, right? And the first thing that he did, because he was in chains and he was, he was in a house that they allowed him to rent, but he wasn't able to leave that house. He was under house arrest. And the first thing that he did, since he couldn't go to the synagogue, was to invite the Jews from the synagogue and from the whole city to come to this house where he was in prison and chained to a praetorian guard. And he said to those Jews... For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. Remember that? Acts 28, verse 20. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. Everything that Paul had done, all of those years of his travels and journeys, everything that he had gone through and everything that he had suffered, everything that he had endured, All of it was for the sake, he said, of the hope of Israel. And we saw, didn't we, multiple times in the book of Acts, that the hope that Paul is talking about there is Jesus Christ. He's not just the one who brings hope. He's not just the one who brings the things that fulfill the hope. He is the hope of Israel. And as we'll see today, he is the hope that Israel is. I'll explain what that means as we go along today. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the great things that God had promised to Israel all throughout the Old Testament as the basis of their eternal hope and eternal life with their God. And so today, I want for us to get a taste of what the Jews in the places like Rome and Corinth and Galatia, all the places where Paul went and proclaimed Jesus to be the fulfillment of everything that God had promised in the Old Testament, what did they hear as Paul was explaining that to them throughout the whole Old Testament? I want us to get a taste for that and take a look for ourselves at what it means that Jesus is the great hope of Israel. And so we're not going to exposit Hebrews chapter 8 today. I had Ian read it because so much of what the hope of Israel was in the Old Testament is expounded in this text, is, 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 is proclaimed in this text where God promises a new and better covenant to the nation of Israel. A covenant that would be better than the one that God made with the people of Israel there after they came out of Egypt and, and they came to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments and God made a covenant with them there. 
that, that formed them into a, a nation as a people, but it was a covenant that depended on their obedience, and they didn't obey. It was a covenant that, that could be broken, and they broke it. And all of that was pointing to something new and better that God was purposing to do. What we need is a nation of people under God's covenant promises that, that are bound to Him by an oath that cannot be broken and that does not depend on their faithfulness but only on the faithfulness of God. So we're going to aim right at that today and we're going to walk all through the Old Testament and see how we get from this old covenant situation and this old situation with the nation of Israel to everything that was that, was, that it was anticipating in the new and better covenant in Christ Jesus and see what all of that means. So what I need you to do is buckle up and moisten your fingers and be ready to flip through the pages of your Bibles because we're going to travel through a lot of God's Word together today and see how it all points to Christ. The first thing I'll say is this. By way of showing just one example of how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. I want you to think about that passage that we read during the confession of sin time and the pastoral prayer time from John chapter 15, the passage about the vine and the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine. And He says to us, you are the branches. That imagery is not something that Jesus just came up with on the spot right then and there in John chapter 15. The imagery of the vine that is planted and then carefully tended to by a vine dresser so that it will bear fruit, that's one of God's favorite, favorite ways of illustrating His relationship to the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. So so Jesus is speaking in Old Testament terms there when He talks about the vine and the branches. Just listen, you don't have to flip yet, but just listen to Psalm 80, for example. The psalmist says... You have brought a vine out of Egypt. He's talking about the nation, right? That came out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted this vine in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sends out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. So in the Old Testament, the vine meant Israel, right? Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved. Let my love song concerning this vineyard be heard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill and he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Speaking of the nation. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes. God wanted Israel to bear much fruit as the vine that he had planted in the Old Testament, but... He looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild, inedible fruit. Israel wasn't a very fruitful vine. Jeremiah chapter 2. God says, I planted you, Israel, I planted you as a choice vine of pure seed, but you turned degenerate and became a wild vine. Though you wash yourself with lye and much soap, the stain of guilt is before me, declares the Lord. So the picture is this. The nation of Israel 
throughout its history was not what God established it to be. It's not what He planted it to be. It was not fruitful as He desired for it to be. And the faith, faithlessness and the fruitlessness of Israel became so severe that, that finally, in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 15, God said that not only are they an unfruitful vine, they've become dry, they've become dead, they've become useless prunings that are only fit to be thrown into the fire and burned in God's jealous wrath. So see, then laying hold of all of that vivid imagery from the Old Testament, Jesus comes in John 15 and says, Now I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So you you notice Jesus doesn't say there in John 15, He doesn't say, I am a vine. Or even the vine. He says, I am the true vine. Contrasting himself, see, with the vine that Old Testament Israel as a nation had been. Because even though God planted Israel, even though God cared for them, even though they were a vine of His, the Old Testament nation was not the true vine. It was only a a foreshadowing. It was only a copy of the true vine in the same way that the Old Testament tabernacle was only a copy of the true temple of God in the heavenly places. And in the same way that the Old Testament priesthood was only a copy of the true high priest that Jesus is, as Hebrews 8 says. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament were only a copy and a shadow of the once and for all true sacrifice that Jesus made. So where the Old Testament vine was so miserably unfaithful, bearing only the fruit of of judgment and death, Jesus Christ, by contrast, the true vine, produced the fruit of eternal life in the souls of all who abide in Him. And so what, what we need to wrap our brains around is that Jesus Christ... The true vine is the true Israel. This is what the New Testament proclaims to us. Where the Old Testament Israel was only a useless vine, Jesus is the chosen one in whom all of the promises and all of the purposes of God are perfectly and gloriously fulfilled in a way that Israel in the Old Covenant could only dream of. And that's the great theme of the Old Testament prophets. All of them, not just the major ones, but even the ones that we call minor because they're shorter. And I want for us to take a step back and look at, look at all of this in nutshell fashion this morning. The first thing, besides John 15 there, that we're going to start thinking about the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament in terms of, we're going to think in terms of the covenant that God made with them. In the history of the world... No single nation is as well known or has as enduring of a legacy as the nation of Israel, right? No piece of land on this planet has been as disputed and important and sought after and fought over as the promised land that God gave to Israel, that little patch of earth in the Middle East over there. 
When we say the name Israel, that just conjures up this whole spectrum of reactions in people's minds and hearts all around the world. So why is that? Where did all that come from? Where, how did all that start? Well, you know the story, I'm sure, of God's promise to Abraham. So turn back, first of all, to the book of Genesis in chapter 15. And you know the story of how God called Abraham out of his homeland. Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's modern-day Iraq. Abraham grew up there. That's where he was born. There was no knowledge of God in that place. It was a pagan land. Abraham was not a follower of the one true God at all. Until God spoke to him one day and told him to leave his home and travel westward to a country that he'd never seen, that he'd never even heard of, and make that place his new home. And by faith, Abraham went. Left his home, left his family, left his property, left his whole life behind and went where this God who he'd never even heard of before told him to go. Genesis 15 this morning. Verse 5, God said to Abraham, look toward the heaven and number the stars. Count the stars up there if you're able to count them all. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and God counted that faith to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham to multiply his offspring as many as the stars are in the sky. And then over in chapter 17, God spells it out this way. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. An everlasting covenant. That was God's promise to Abraham. That was his covenant with Abraham. An everlasting covenant. It could never end. And the, and the promise was to cause a multitude of descendants to come from Abraham who would become nations that would bless the world and to give those descendants the land of promise to possess. Now, when God made this covenant with Abraham, He didn't just say it. He didn't just speak it. He did something very specific to set this promise in stone. He made this covenant with Abraham in a specific way so that the fulfillment of this covenant depended only on God's faithfulness and not on anything that Abraham would or wouldn't do. You remember, and it's there in Genesis 15, we don't have time to go through it all, but God had Abraham take animals and cut them apart and make a pathway. That was a typical thing that was, was done when covenants were made, and then both people who were, who were promising each other and coming into this covenant obligation together would, would pass between the severed parts of those animals, as if to say, if either one of us breaks the terms of the covenant, may it be done to us as has been done to these animals. So they were taking a blood oath, basically. But when God made the covenant with Abraham, He put Abraham to sleep. And then God passed between the animals alone. The meaning of which is the, the, the condition of the covenant had nothing to do with Abraham. 
the fulfillment of the covenant wasn't going to depend at all on Abraham and whether he was faithful or not. It would only depend on the faithfulness of God. So this was an unconditional and unbreakable covenant that God was making with Abraham. Which is why it is an everlasting covenant. It couldn't be changed. It couldn't be broken. God says over in Genesis 17 there that that it, it would be everlasting. It couldn't be unmade. And so in his old age, Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob is the one who wrestled with God and had his name changed to Israel. And Israel became the father of twelve sons. And those offspring became the twelve tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Look at verse 13 of Genesis 15 there. God says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Egypt, right? But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And all of that happened, didn't it? Abraham's descendants spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. God remained faithful to His Word. Judgment came upon the Egyptians. Ten plagues. God raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. They spoiled the Egyptians. They took the possessions of the Egyptians with them in the Exodus. God led them by His presence. A cloud by day, a fire by night. And so the twelve tribes of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, came to the foot of Mount Sinai, where once again, God made a covenant with them. So the promise has been made to Abraham that there would be this everlasting string of descendants of his who would be blessed by God and be a blessing upon the earth. Unbreakable covenant. Now that group of offspring, there's probably around 2 million of them, comes out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God's going to make another covenant now with them, but it's going to be a little different, a lot different than the covenant He made with Abraham. Because this covenant that He makes with them at Mount Sinai contains a word that's only made up of two letters, a little tiny word, but it's a big, big important word, and the word is if. This covenant has an if. Built in. Exodus 19, if you want to turn there, Exodus 19, verse 4, God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be my treasured possession, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if you obey, if you're faithful. Absolutely critical to understand the if there. 
the conditional nature of this covenant at Mount Sinai where for the first time, the family of Israel became a nation. Holy unto God. Their national status was conditional. It depended on their obedience and their faithfulness to do what God said to do. And so all throughout the book of Exodus, and and God spells it out also in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, God says, if you obey, if you're faithful, I'll give you the land, I'll bless your crops, I'll bless the fruit of your wombs, I'll bless you on the battlefield. But if they disobeyed, God would curse them. The crops would fail. You won't be as fruitful. You won't be successful. You'll become slaves to enemy nations who speak a language you don't even know. So, the first covenant, the one that guaranteed Abraham's offspring that that they would become nations of blessing, that was an unconditional and unbreakable covenant because it only depended on the faithfulness of God alone. But this covenant now that formed Abraham's offspring into an earthly nation under God was conditioned on their obedience. It was breakable. It was possible for it to be broken. It was possible for there to come a day when Israel's status as a holy nation was dissolved by their disobedience. So you know your Old Testament a little bit at least, right? Did they obey or did they disobey? Yeah. There in Exodus 19, they said they'd obey. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All of it. We promise, God, we won't fail. But did they? Is is Israel known for their abundant faithfulness to God? Were Were there great golden ages of righteousness in their history? I mean, there were periods where righteousness and obedience were maintained. David was a relatively good king. The first part of Solomon's reign went pretty well. In the days of Josiah, there were were some good times. There were a few other good kings in the southern kingdom. But any basic understanding of the Old Testament tells us that, that those were the exceptions, not the rule. The rule in Israel was disobedience, idolatry, and unfaithfulness towards God. And, and, and when did that start? How long after Moses led the people out of Egypt did it take for them to start bickering and complaining against God? How long after they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, how long did it take before they were saying they wish they could go back to Egypt because the food was better than what they had to eat out here in the desert. Not very long. The book of Numbers tells us all about how as soon as God freed them from slavery in Egypt, right after the parting of the Red Sea, that miraculous provision of God, the first thing the people started to do was to grumble and complain against Him. Oh, that we could go back to Egypt. At least there were onions there. Instead of this bland manna that God's miraculously raining on us every morning. Their hearts were hard towards God. You remember that story in Numbers where they said, we, had, we wish we had some meat. So God said, alright, 
if you, if you want meat, I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to become loathsome to you. It's going to come up out of your nostrils, God literally said. And he sent so many quail and they stuffed themselves and gorged themselves on these quail that they became sick, literally, in their greed and their hard-heartedness towards God. The point being that they didn't trust God. He'd freed them from Egypt and, and they didn't trust Him. They didn't trust His Word. And so because of that unfaithfulness, they spent 40 years wandering around in the book of Numbers in the wilderness until that entire unbelieving, unfaithful generation died off. And then God, very mercifully and very miraculously, kept His promise to bring them into the promised land. And He gave them that land, right? Miraculously. And did they trust Him then? Did they obey Him then? Were they faithful to Him then? After the walls of Jericho fell? After God literally made the sun stand still in the sky for a whole day, were they so impressed that they went, well, we'll, we'll never disobey again? No. Now, next comes the book of Judges, right? And it describes that terrible period of time where God would punish the sin of the people by allowing them to be oppressed and afflicted, and then He would raise up a judge like Samson or Gideon or Othniel to deliver them, to pour out mercy on them. And for a time they were grateful and they repented of their sin, but it didn't last. And the cycle started over and all throughout the book of Judges, over and over and over throughout that whole period until at the very end of the book of Judges, right? The very last verse, the assessment is given. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No one feared God. Lawlessness, idolatry, licentiousness, rebellion, wickedness. And it only got worse and worse and worse. Things were absolutely miserable in Israel. And just like in our day now today, even though things were miserable and a mess, nobody wanted to admit that their sin was the cause of it. They wanted to point the fingers, well, well, if God would only do this for us, things would be better. And the thing they wanted God to do was to give them an earthly king. And the message there, again, is that they, just, they didn't think God was doing enough for them. And they didn't trust Him as their king. And they wanted an earthly king like all the other nations had. Then everything will be better, they thought. And God let them have an earthly king in order to show them that it wouldn't solve anything. And in fact, things just got worse and worse and worse, didn't they? From Saul, the very first king who was wicked from the get-go, to Solomon, whose 300 wives led him into idolatry, and so the whole kingdom got divided north and south. To all of the wicked kings in the north, not one of them was good. And most of the kings in the south also ruling wickedly. There were some notable exceptions, but again, that's what they were. They were exceptions. Mostly, the kings of Israel all just showed how something else was needed. Something better was needed. Something more was needed. And through all those years of sin and failure, over and over again, God chastised Israel for their sin through the prophets. We'll see next week in the book of Hosea how God commanded the prophet to marry a prostitute, a woman of harlotry, so that he and his wife and his little family there would become a living parable 
of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. You're like the prostitute, God says, and I'm like the prophet. (laughs) She bore Hosea children, and God commanded their names to be in Hebrew, Lo Ruhamah and Lo Ami. And those names mean no mercy and not my people. That's literally what the names of the children were. That was God's message. I'm done having mercy. And you're no longer going to be my people. God poured out judgment on the northern kingdom in 722. The Assyrians came and decimated the northern kingdom and effectively wiped it off the map. Not long after that, judgment came on the southern kingdom as well at the hands of the Babylonians. Tons of people were taken into exile. Ezekiel was one of them. Daniel was one of them. Many, many, many people were killed. Others were scattered and dispersed. The glory of God's presence left Jerusalem. The city was burned. The temple was destroyed. All of those covenant curses from Deuteronomy and Leviticus came into full effect. Famine, sword, wild beasts... Pestilence, they, they, they bore the full brunt of God's wrath. They had not obeyed. Israel had not been faithful. And God's patience had run out. But still he was merciful, right? He preserved a remnant, a few survivors who were faithful to him. People like Ezra, people like Nehemiah, prophets like Zechariah and Malachi, who ministered faithfully after the exile in Babylon. And after God brought Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the ruins. And so then, after they'd been chastised so severely, after they'd learned their lesson in exile for 70 years, after God mercifully restored them to their homeland, then they finally came around, right, and obeyed, right? Not even close. They were still heart of heart. They were still stubborn, prone to wander. So... Turn over to the book of Zechariah, all the way over to the other end of your Old Testament, second to the last book, Zechariah, then Malachi. This is one of the minor prophets that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. Zechariah, and turn to chapter 11. Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, there it is, chapter 11. Zechariah is prophesying after the exile in Babylon, after Cyrus decreed that they could all go home and rebuild their temple. And we see that even then, even after, being, after having suffered serious consequences for their sin, after experiencing tremendous mercy and deliverance, they still continue to sin. Their own leaders, who were supposed to be shepherds to the people, were so corrupt that they led the people into sin, they sold the people into slavery for profit sometimes. And so God tells Zechariah to illustrate how hopeless this rebelliousness was and how his patience has now, at the end of the line here, run out. So what he does is he has Zechariah dress up like a shepherd in order to illustrate how unfaithful the human shepherds of Israel had been after the exile. Look at verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, become, Zechariah, become shepherd of the flock that is doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. 
Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich at their expense. Their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I, God says, will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor, each into the hand of his king. They shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So, Zechariah says, I became the shepherd of the flock that was doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And as the shepherd, he says, I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union, and with them I tended the sheep. So Zechariah becomes a shepherd of this wayward flock. They're called a doomed flock. They're doomed to be slaughtered. In other words, Zechariah's ministry as a shepherd is going to fail. As a shepherd to this doomed flock, he took these two staves. On one, he carved the word Favor indicating God's favor upon this people as a nation. And on the other one, he carved the word unity, indicating the result of God's favor. They were a people united as a nation unto God, right? According to that covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. So Zechariah begins to shepherd them. Verse 8 says, He destroyed all the false shepherds. The false prophets, the corrupt priests, the the kings who had led Israel astray. Zechariah cleaned house. Zechariah, yeah, he cleaned house. But still the sin of the flock of Israel continued. So Zechariah now gets impatient. Verse 9, he says, I will not be your shepherd anymore. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Zechariah is sensing the absolute hopelessness of this task. These people cannot be shepherded. And as a prophet, acting and speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, what is to die, let it die. Let these doomed sheep be slaughtered. And then look what he does in verse 10. I took my staff, favor, indicating God's favor upon the nation, and I broke it annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. It was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. No more favor from God. The covenant that defined them as a nation under God was annulled as if it had never been made on that day. Verse 14 shows the consequence. What happens when God no longer has favor? Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. No more favor, no more unity. No more mercy, no longer my people, no more covenant, no more nation. That is a serious prophecy, is it not? God's purposes with Israel as a covenant nation were ended that day because they had broken the breakable covenant for the last time. So what are we to make of that? 
as we see all of the ways in which the Old Testament nation of Israel was faithless to God, as we come to terms with God's anger toward them and hear that he has annulled the covenant, what are we to make of that? Does that mean that his promise to Abraham's offspring has become void? Well, the Apostle Paul raises that exact same question in Romans chapter 9. So turn there now. Romans chapter 9, Paul asks that very thing. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see what Paul's saying? The same thing that Zechariah was saying. The nation has been cursed and cut off. And that grieves Paul as a Jewish person, but it's nonetheless true. It breaks Paul's heart because it's true. So the natural question that any Jewish person would have is this. If they're cut off, if the covenant is annulled, if the nation is doomed, then haven't God's promises failed? Well, they didn't fail in terms of the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, right? Because of that big if. If you disobey, it all goes away. And it did. God was faithful to that, wasn't he? He took it all away. What about the covenant with Abraham? Well, that one didn't have an if. That one can't be broken. That one doesn't depend on Abraham's faithfulness or his offspring's faithfulness. So what about that promise? Has that failed? Since Israel is cut off and cursed? Well, the answer is in Romans 9 verse 6. Nope, it's not as if the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You notice he uses the same word there? And the only way it makes any sense at all is if he means it in two different ways. God has in mind a covenant group of people that he calls Israel. And it's not as if everybody who belongs to that is a descendant of Israel, of Jacob, of Abraham. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, regardless of ethnicity. So you put it all together, right? God made Abraham this unconditional, irrevocable, everlasting promise regarding Abraham's offspring. And in the Old Testament, those offspring were constituted as an earthly nation through a conditional, breakable covenant, which they, in fact, broke repeatedly. And so God ended that covenant. God annulled it in Zechariah 11 as if it never was. But the great hope that the Old Testament speaks of is that there is a new covenant that would come, that would constitute Abraham's offspring as a nation in a way that couldn't be broken, couldn't be annulled. 
God spoke of it in Jeremiah 31. It's what we read in Hebrews chapter 8. He quotes it straight out of Jeremiah 31. Not like the covenant that I made with them at Sinai that could be broken. This one can't be the new covenant that would come. This would be a covenant where God wrote His law on their hearts. Not just so that, so that they weren't just trying to obey outwardly. They were changed inwardly, transformed inwardly. He filled them with His Spirit, He said, in the New Covenant. And Jesus Christ, during the Last Supper, took that cup and said, This cup is the New Covenant in my blood. Meaning, it's in force now. Hebrews 8 makes that very clear also, right? That that we're not waiting for the new covenant to begin sometime in our future. It's here now. It's in full measure now. It's made the old one obsolete. How can that be? If the new covenant is a covenant, as it says, that was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If it's in effect now, then, then why are the Jewish people, for the most part, not enjoying the benefits of it? Because according to Paul, in the New Covenant, not all who are descended from Israel are are the ones who belong to Israel. Because in the New Covenant, Israel is not defined by the children of the flesh, by the physical descendants of Abraham. In the New Covenant, Israel is defined as the children of the promise. And who are the children of the promise? Well, Paul makes that clear too. Galatians chapter 3, turn there. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 5. In Galatians, Paul is responding to a false gospel that teaches that salvation comes by works. So he says in verse 5, in response, Does he, does God who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember? Genesis 15, God made the promise, Abraham believed God, and God counted that faith as righteousness. He attributed righteousness to Abraham through Abraham's faith. And now he's saying this is how salvation works for all of us. You don't get it by works. You don't get it by doing good things. You get it by faith, by trusting God, by trusting His promise, just like Abraham did. And through faith, God will account you righteous. Simple, right? The true gospel is that we are justified in the same way that Abraham was. By faith, apart from works. Then Paul goes on to say, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? The ones who have his blood in their veins? The ones who are his descendants by flesh, physically? No. Those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. Doesn't matter if you've got Abraham's blood in your veins. Doesn't matter if you have have Jewish DNA, if there is such a thing. What matters in terms of God counting you as a son of Abraham is if you have faith like Abraham. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in Christ who fulfills the promises of God. Now look down at verse 16 here of Galatians 3. Paul says this about how the promises made to Abraham's offspring are fulfilled in the new covenant. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say offsprings. 
plural referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Jesus. Christ is the true offspring of Abraham. It's explicit. Christ is the one in whom the promise made to Abraham is fully and completely and absolutely fulfilled. And verse 26, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female when it comes to being a child of God. Ethnicity, social status, and gender do not matter. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, despite being a man or a woman, despite being a slave or a free man, despite being a Jew or a Greek, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see it? No matter what ethnicity, social status, the only thing that matters in terms of being counted as a descendant of Abraham and as a child of God and an offspring of Abraham and therefore an heir according to the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham, the only thing that matters is belonging to Christ through faith in His gospel. Why? Why is that the only... Because God has broken His covenant with Israel? No! They broke the covenant that, the, that God made with them at Mount Sinai. God never broke any covenant that He made with Israel, and the, the reality is that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the promised offspring. Jesus is the suffering servant who has redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that's why Peter says that together, no matter who we are or where we're from, If we have faith in Him and if we're in Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Not because God has replaced the nation of Israel with the church, but because Jesus is the true Israel, the true fruitful vine, and all who abide in Him are heirs according to the promise. The great hope, see, that the Old Testament looks forward to is that everywhere that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament failed, Jesus Christ has succeeded with absolute perfection. And that's what Paul means when he's teaching the Jews in Rome all about the hope of Israel. He's talking about Jesus Christ, not just in the sense that that everything the Old Testament Jews had always hoped for, Jesus had come to do for them. Even more than that, what he means is Jesus is the hope. Not just the source of the hope, he's identified as the hope. Because he's identified as the true Israel. He is the hope of Israel. The hope that Israel is in Christ. And so we see that God has so sovereignly orchestrated all of history that Jesus perfectly recapitulates the entire history of the Old Testament nation that Israel was. Jesus is our new creation. Go all the way back to Genesis. Jesus is our exodus. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the true bread of life that comes down from heaven, foreshadowed by all that manna. Jesus is the true and living water foreshadowed by that which came flowing out of the rock in the desert. Jesus is our mercy seat 
foreshadowed by the ark in the tabernacle. Jesus is our sin offering. Jesus is our great day of atonement with God. Jesus is our everlasting jubilee. Jesus is the true vine. He's the true bread. He's the light of the world. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 8 says, which means his reign will never come to an end. He's the true temple. He's the Lamb of God. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the true offspring of Abraham. He's the true Israel. He is the hope of Israel. And in Him is the fullness of this new covenant where inheriting the blessings and the promises of being God's people in a way that can't be undone None of it depends on our obedience. It all depends on Him and what He has done. They'll all know me, God says of those who belong to the new covenant. Nobody will have to say to his brother, know the Lord, because they'll all know me. Because I will have given them new hearts and written my law on on their hearts and poured my Holy Spirit out to abide in their hearts. And so they will be my people forever. And nothing, nothing can undo that because it's all done and accomplished and it all depends on Jesus and His work, His obedience. And He obeyed unto death on the cross. And what's more, by the power of His resurrection from the dead, we are raised to newness of life and we're not left like all those Old Testament people who just had the law on tablets of stone but fallen sinful hearts and so it was hopeless for them to obey. It was inevitable that they would disobey and lose the covenant. But we have new hearts. We've been buried with Christ in baptism. We've been raised with Him to newness of life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Bondage to slavery and sin. The reign of sin. The dominion of sin in our lives. All of that's been broken. And the new has come. Hearts born again of the Holy Spirit of God. The righteousness of Jesus coming to dominate the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit beginning to flourish more and more in the new life that we have in Christ. That's what a new covenant person is. That's what a Christian is. It's not just someone whose sins have been forgiven for now and and you're going to lose it all again tomorrow. No, no. A Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven permanently by the perfect sacrifice of Christ and they've been raised to newness of life and the sin that remains in us is being mortified. It's being put to death. And the result of that is a life that that increasingly is devoted to service to God. And that's what you've got to see yourselves as. You have to understand what you are. You have to understand who you are in Christ. You have to understand what you are as a new covenant person. What you are is devoted to God's service and kingdom entirely. There's this this concept that Christians have sometimes that that service to God and ministering in His kingdom and His churches is optional activity. It's, it's a little piece of my life as a whole in this world and I get to choose what it is or what it isn't and when it is and when it isn't and how much it is and how much it isn't. But that's not what it is to be in Christ. To be in Christ is, is everything. He is your life. Serving His kingdom is all. 
The New Testament teaches that everyone in Christ's body has been given gifts to use in the service of the kingdom and in ministry in His church. It's not optional. It's not limited to to tithing and supporting the missionaries out there and praying for the people who are doing the service. All of us have to use our gifts. Serving God isn't a part of my life as a Christian. It is my life. You've been saved eternally. Your conscience has been cleansed from dead works in order to what? In order to serve the living God. Your life is no longer your own. That's what you are as a new covenant member. You no longer live according to the priorities and goals and desires and ambitions of your own flesh or this world. As a citizen of Christ's kingdom, your life now is dominated by Him. And so your life needs to look different from people whose, whose lives are dominated by the priorities of this world. Not just because you do things differently on the outside, but because you have been recreated inwardly. And so that's the thing to pray for this morning, is that, is that God would awaken in us an abiding sense of our new covenant identity in Jesus Christ. That by His Holy Spirit within us, God would continue to reshape the direction of our hearts and cause us to become consumed with such a great love for God, such a great passion for Christ, that when people look at us, they see something radically different than what they're used to looking at in the world. And, and in fact, what, what's happening is that they're, when they look at us, they're not so much seeing us as they're seeing Jesus being formed in us, being formed through us. The first instinct that the world has when they look at you, Christian, shouldn't be to classify you as a typical American or typical man or typical woman. They should look at you and see the Spirit of Christ defining you and say, that person's really devoted to their God. They may not approve of that. They may mock you and ridicule you for it. They may persecute you for it, but they should see it. Would anyone say that of us today? There is a true bondservant of the King of Kings. There is someone who is utterly consumed with seeking the kingdom of God first, so much that they're willing to forsake everything in this world. There is someone who considers no cost too great to count for the honor of his king and kingdom. Is that who we are? Or are we people whose whose own desires and needs and priorities take up so much of our time and energy that we have relatively little left to give and devote to Christ's work? Seek first the kingdom and the righteousness of Christ. Give first to Him from your time, from your energy, from your money, from your life, from your all. Give first to Him. Whether it's evangelism, whether it's teaching, whether it's mowing the lawns, whether it's cleaning the toilets at the church, whether it's sitting with somebody whose life is a mess and praying with them, encouraging them, whether it's helping clean up after the fellowship meal, Whatever it is, doesn't matter what your ministry is, so long as you're faithful and fruitful in your service to the King. And praise God, He he, he doesn't leave us to our own strength to bear the fruit, does He? He will not let His new covenant people wither and shrivel and become dead prunings 
because He is faithful. And He abides in us and causes this fruit to be born from us and He will complete the work that He has begun. So trust Him and abide in Him and abide in His Word and let His Word richly dwell in you and bear much fruit for God as a new covenant member of the kingdom. Let's pray this morning that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in our hearts and make us fruitful for Christ. Our God and our Father, there is so much truth in Your Word that You have revealed. And it is complex and it is detailed and at the same time, You have made it understandable for us and You have declared it through the words of people like the Apostle Paul with such crystal clarity that it seems simple. And so would you help us to understand, Father, what it means that we are the sons of Abraham and as such, sons of God, because we have believed in the promises that are all yes in Christ and have been accounted righteous in Him and have been raised with Him to newness of life. Father, would you help us to know what we are in Christ? Help us to understand our new covenant identity And help us to understand our definition as human beings who have been raised to newness of life and have been placed in service to our King. Father, would you define every aspect of our lives according to your holiness and service to you and your kingdom. And as you do that in us and continue to bear fruit in us and cause us to grow and cause us to obey, Father, would you be glorified? Would you build your church Would you make us faithful to go out and proclaim this gospel that people might be saved from their sins and be brought in to be members of this new covenant who know God? And so, Father, use us and speak through us and work through us and build your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.